Before we begin, I want to give you a quick update in what's happening in our life here in Houston, Texas. For the past week, our children have been home. The school's been closed. The Torch Center is closed to all outside events and all classes. Everything we're doing is we're doing online. Of course, it's been harder to be productive, but thank God, Baruch Hashem, everyone's doing well. Our health is well. I mentioned last week that there was a girl who came to visit Houston who was diagnosed or was uh, found to be positive with coronavirus. There's 10 girls who were in close contact with her who are in quarantine, and they've been in quarantine all week. Thank God none of them have exhibited any symptoms, and thank God our community is still okay, even though we don't know actually, you know, how many people are actually infected, but so far things are great, and I'm hoping and praying for all of you, wherever you may be, that you and your families and your communities are safe. I wanted to share two ideas from the Parsha, and ideas that, of course, are going to be relevant to the extraordinary times in which we are living and the things that we are experiencing together in the world today. So the Parsha begins with an instruction to go convey the messages, the Almighty tells Moshe, go convey the messages that I told you about building the tabernacle, about building the Mishkan, go tell it to the Jewish people. But it begins with a exhortation that they must first observe the Shabbos. And in fact, this is a connection that we've seen several times. In last week's parasha, chapter 31, verse 13, after Hashem tells Moshe everything that he needs to do about the Mishkan, about the tabernacle, he gives them the caveat, speak to the Jewish people, and tell them, but they have to observe my Shabbos. It's a sign between me and you, between me and the Jewish people, for your generations, to know that I am Hashem, your God. And Rashi over there already tells us that the Almighty is telling Moshe to go to the Jewish people about building the Mishkan. But it's imperative for them to remember that even though the Mishkan is so, so, so important, still it does not override, it does not supersede the Shabbos. And therefore, when you're working on it, when you're building it, when you're doing all the construction, you have to take a time out for the duration of Shabbos, because Shabbos is even more important. That's what it says in last week's parsha, 31.13. In the second verse of our parsha, again, it's repeated. This is when Moshe is actually conveying the messages to the Jewish people about building the Mishkan. And that, of course, is going to be the subject matter of the two parshios of Vayakal Pakude that are a double parsha this week. And again, he starts off his message, and he tells them, for six days you work, six days of the week. On the seventh day, that's a day that's designated for God, Shabbos, Shabbason. It's a Shabbos for the Almighty. If you do work in it, you're put to death. And again, Rashi explains what's the juxtaposition between Shabbos and the instructions to build the Mishkan. It's coming to tell you that building the Mishkan, of course, is paramount, the most important thing but it doesn't override the Shabbos. Now, parenthetically, this is the source that teaches us that whatever is needed to build the Mishkan, to build the tabernacle, is included in the prohibitions of Shabbos. It's banned from doing it on Shabbos. And that's where you get the concept of the 39 categories of work that are A, necessary, critical for building the Mishkan, and B, consequently, are prohibited from doing on Shabbos. I think this raises the interesting question. What is the connection between Shabbos, between 
observing this day off, this sabbatical on Saturday, beginning with Friday night, of course, extending till Saturday evening, Shabbos. What's the connection between Shabbos and the tabernacle? And I think more specifically, there is an implicit assumption that I would have thought, if not for the verse telling me that it's not true, but I would have thought, absent the verse, that building the tabernacle would indeed supersede Shabbos. It would override Shabbos. That's what you would have thought. Comes along the verse, and the verse tells you, no, Shabbos is more important. It doesn't override it. So I think there's two questions here. A, why would I have thought, absent the verse, that building the Mishkan, build the tabernacle, would override Shabbos? And question B, why indeed does it not override the Shabbos? So I want to suggest an answer. The tabernacle, we're told a few weeks ago in the parsha, it is a dwelling place for God. God tells us, you build a tabernacle, build for me a sanctuary, and I'm going to dwell amongst you. It's an amazing idea. The Almighty, where does he reside? You may have thought he resides in the heaven. And you know what? Maybe that's true. But here there is this crossover. There's this touch point of these two worlds. The Almighty says, if you follow these instructions to a T, I'm going to dwell amongst you. So you would have thought, after all, that's the goal of existence. To be able to have a commune with the Almighty. To have a close relationship. To have the Almighty dwell amongst us. We're going to have an amazing legacy. We're going to have this eternal existence. Our life over here, it's not just some small life that we're living as uh, sentient humanoids that we live, we're born, we live our life, and we die, and we are forgotten into the annals of history. Oh no, we could do something. We could follow a precise recipe to build a certain building, and we could have the Almighty dwell amongst us. What an amazing legacy we could build via the Mishnah, via the tabernacle. And that, of course, is the most important thing we could have in our lives. It's the greatest thing we could achieve as a human. So you may have thought that that would supersede everything. And therefore, if you hadn't been told explicitly otherwise, you would have thought that building the Mishnah, it's the most important activity that a human could possibly do. And therefore, you have to work 24-7 to be able to erect your Mishnah, to erect your tabernacle. Comes along the verse and says, no, Shabbos is not overridden by building the tabernacle. And why, indeed, does it not override Shabbos? So I want to suggest that with the building of the Mishnah, with the building of the tabernacle, you're trying to create what you already have every Shabbos. Building of the tabernacle, what's the goal? We can have a built tabernacle, and what then? The Almighty would dwell amongst us. You know what we have every week, every Shabbos? We have the Almighty dwelling amongst us. And therefore, it doesn't make sense to discard the Shabbos, discard the Almighty dwelling amongst us, so that maybe we could create something where the Almighty will dwell amongst us. Shabbos, the Almighty is already dwelling amongst us to build something and desecrate the Shabbos, so that in the future I may have something that I already have every Shabbos. That, of course, doesn't make any sense. So initially, I would have thought, hey, you know, if I'm going to build a Mishkan, the Almighty is going to be with us. That is important. Maybe it would supersede Shabbos. Comes along the verse and tells us, no, with Shabbos, with observance of the Shabbos, I already have the equivalent of the Mishkan, and therefore, it is even more important than only building 
trying to create what you already have with Shabbos. I think that's the idea. That Shabbos is us inviting the Almighty to be with us. And the verse that we read in Lefty's Parsha makes that clear. Be'ni uvein b'nei Yisrael. Between me and between the children of Israel. There's something unique that's happening here every week between the Almighty and us. We have the Almighty with us, together with us in our home. There's an amazing custom that happens in all Jewish homes on Friday night. The Talmud tells us that when you come home from synagogue, from shul on Shabbos, you have various angels accompanying you. And you get home and you sing a special song, Shalom Aleichem, which means welcome. And you welcome the angels. And that's the first stanza. You welcome the angels. And the second stanza is Bo'achem Shalom. May your coming into our home, we tell the angels, may that be for peace. And then the third stanza, Baruchuni Shalom. We're asking the angels, think about it, you have angels coming to your house. What are you going to ask them for? You ask them, of course, for a blessing. Baruchuni Shalom. Give me a blessing of peace. And then you have the fourth stanza. And we tell them, Seitchem Shalom. May your departure be in peace. I don't get it. You have angels. They're coming to your home. You welcome them in. You ask for a blessing. But before you even start the meal, you kick them out. Why are we kicking out the angels? That's not good hospitality. Why are we telling the angels, we got your blessing, and now you can leave? And the answer is that Shabbos is Baini Uvein Israel between us and the Almighty. It's a level of closeness that we can have with God that even the angels cannot partake in. And therefore, when you're working to build a mission, of course, it's very important, but you cannot desecrate the Shabbos because the Shabbos represents closeness that is even greater than that of the Mishkan and certainly than that of building the Mishkan. I want to add several extraordinary statements that the Talmud says about Shabbos observance. So in the Talmud, in the book of Shabbos, page 118, it says as follows, Kol HaMeshamer Shabbat Hilchato, whoever observes, guards, safeguards the Shabbos according to its halacha, afilu oved avodazara. Even if he's a sinner, he's an idolater. An idolater the way they did it in the generation of Enosh, all their sins, all this person's sins will be expunged, will be cleansed. An amazing insight that Shabbos can purge someone of even the worst sin possible. Of course, the worst sin we say, is idolatry. Idolatry is the antithesis of amuna of faith. And here we see that there's something that can infuse so much faith into someone's heart that it can actually cleanse an entire generation worth of idolatry. Why? Idolatry is when we abandon God. And we say, you know what? There's other things, other entities, other deities that we'd prefer over the Almighty. And what's Shabbos? Shabbos is between us and the Almighty. We have such closeness with the Almighty on Shabbos that just experiencing Shabbos properly, that's enough to be able to cleanse an entire generation worth of idolatry. A person could do the worst idolatry possible, and then you have 
the precise antithesis of idolatry, the Shabbos, and it could come and cleanse that previous life of idolatry. I want to add two successive teachings in the Talmud. I want to tell the audience that you have to listen carefully because what I'm going to say is a little bit hard to follow and it's easy to miss, but it's a very powerful insight that's very relevant to what we are going through together as a species now with the coronavirus. I want to thank also my brother-in-law, Shmuley Botnik. He started me off on this idea. So the Talmud says like this, had the Jewish people observed the first Shabbos of their history, no other nation, no other people could ever have possibly lorded over them. Why? What was the first Shabbos of the Jewish people's history? Well, that's after the Exodus, after they left Egypt, and they were given the manna, and they were given the rule, don't go out and collect the manna on Shabbos. And there were some Jews who went out to collect the manna. And immediately following this episode, Amalek, the enemy of the Jewish people, came and they waged war with the Jewish people. So the inference of this teaching in the Talmud is that the only way that Amalek could have had some sort of foothold to fight the Jewish people, it was only because the Jewish people didn't keep the first Shabbos of their existence. Hold that thought. Immediately following that teaching, again, this is from the Talmud and Shabbos at page 118, you have a second teaching. And this is as follows. If the Jewish people observe two Shabbosos, two Shabboses, in accordance with its rules, immediately they are going to be redeemed. And the commentators explain that, of course, redemption, that has the messianic feel to it. And repentance, of course, is necessary, but repentance is insufficient. You have to have meticulous, fastidious observance of Shabbos in order to evoke, in order to bring about redemption. But let's compare these two teachings in the Talmud. The first teaching, of course, they're both talking about Shabbos, but the first teaching is talking about a historical Shabbos. The first Shabbos of our Jewish people, of our existence, had we obeyed, had we observed, had we adhered to that first Shabbos, we would have been freed from foreign rule. It's only because some people left the camp and went to try to collect the manna on Shabbos in opposition to the guidance, to the instruction that they got before Shabbos, it's only as a result of that that a foreign nation, i.e. Amalek, could have come and attacked the Jewish people. That's the first teaching. The second teaching talks about a double Shabbos. If the Jewish people in the future, if they obey and observe and adhere to two Shabboses in a row, or it doesn't say in a row necessarily, but it says two Shabboses, then that would bring them to redemption. So I think there's two questions that we could ask. A, what is the significance of the first Shabbos? Like, it seems like there was something unique about that first Shabbos that warrants examination. Moreover, if Shabbos is so powerful, why do we need to have two of them? Why does the Jewish nation need to observe two Shabboses in order to have redemption? Wouldn't it be sufficient to say, hey, if the Jewish people get together, if we band together, and we all obey and observe and adhere to one Shabbos, well, 
that should be enough for redemption. Why do we need to have two? And somehow to get to that first stage, the stage where we're not controlled by foreign rule, well, then you only need to observe the first Shabbos, which, which sounds like only one. So what's going on over here? So here's the idea. The first Shabbos, when did that happen? That happened after the Exodus, but before Mount Sinai, before the Ten Commandments, during those 50 days between when they left Egypt, the Exodus, and when they got to the foot of the mountain and they got the Ten Commandments, and of course, in the Ten Commandments is the mitzvah to observe Shabbos. If they got the mitzvah to observe Shabbos at Sinai, well, then the first Shabbos did not actually have all the laws because some of the laws they got at Sinai. So what was included in the laws of the first Shabbos? So you can actually read the verse. We read this a few weeks ago in the parasha. Moses, Moshe tells the Jewish people, Re'u, come see that the Almighty gave you the Shabbos, and therefore you get a double portion of manna on day six on Friday, and therefore each person should stay home. Al ishmim komo, a man shall not leave their dwelling place beyom hashvi'i on the seventh day. The suggestion is that it doesn't mention on the first Shabbos, it doesn't mention categories of work. Of course, we know. What does it mean to be in Shabbos? It means to stay home, but also means to refrain from 39 different categories of work. On the first Shabbos, there is no mention of categories of work because the first Shabbos was not about abstaining from work. That we got at Sinai. That's part of the corpus of laws that came later. So what was included in the first Shabbos? It was only the instruction to remain home, to be quarantined, to be sequestered with God. That alone is enough to free the nation from foreign servitude. Again, the Talmud says clearly, had the Jewish people kept the first Shabbos, when Shabbos was not as comprehensive, the laws didn't include all the instructions against doing work just to stay home, that would be enough for them to not be subject to the foreign servitude of Amalek. What about redemption? That's the next teaching in the Talmud. Redemption, well, that actually requires a higher level. It's not just enough to observe one Shabbos. You have to observe two Shabboses, i.e., maybe we can suggest, one of the first variety and one of the second variety. The first variety, that's the Shabbos that's about staying home, about being quarantined, about being sequestered, about not leaving your home. That's the kind of Shabbos that existed before Sinai. And then you have the Shabbos of the second variety, which includes all the laws that give us the comprehensive laws of Shabbos, you need to have them both in order to unlock the redemption that is found in the double Shabbos, i.e. the double laws of Shabbos, both the laws of Shabbos that tell you to stay home and the laws of Shabbos that tell you to refrain from 39 categories of work. I think that this upcoming Shabbos there's a very good chance that this is the first Shabbos in many decades and centuries that our nation is observing their first Shabbos. 
i.e. a Shabbos, where people stay home. Many states in the United States have rules. You can't leave your home. There are curfews and there are restrictions and people in general are choosing to stay home. In Israel, they just announced today, today's Thursday, they just announced the country's in full lockdown. Don't leave your home unless it's an absolute emergency. I'm not making any predictions. And of course, whenever we talk, wherever we're even close to the subject of trying to predict Messiah, redemption, anything like that, of course, we have to have the caveat, we don't know, we're not prophets, we have no idea what's actually happening, unless you have a portal, a vision into the future, it's really, it's really foolish to try to predict it. But I think it's noteworthy that the Talmud tells us that had the Jewish people observed the first Shabbos, when they did not have the comprehensive laws, all they were told is, don't leave your home. That was all that was included in the Shabbos. Had they done that, had they observed that, it would have been sufficient for them to have forestalled or eliminated the conflict with Amalek. Of course, to get full redemption, you need to have two Shabbosos. You have to have also the laws of not doing any work. But I think there's something really special happening. Of course, this is not by our choosing. I think it's something noteworthy that we're about to experience a Shabbos, like one that we have never seen in our lifetime, where the majority of Jews in the world are going to stay home for Shabbos. I think it's very noteworthy. Of course, to get the entire Jewish world to observe, to obey a full Shabbos, or maybe in the words, in the parlance of this Talmud, a two Shabbosos, i.e. also including the laws of the third categories of work, we still have a ways to go to get that. But I think it's something interesting. We're living in interesting times, maybe even biblical times. A lot of very unusual things are happening, and I just found this so striking that we're told, the first thing we're told about Shabbos, the first law that we're told collectively as a nation about Shabbos is not about what we cannot do, the third categories of work. It's about just staying home and being together with God. And my hope is that our nation has a transformative Shabbos when we at least collectively as a nation are going to be observing the first Shabbos, i.e. the Shabbos, where we're staying home. Of course, to get full redemption, you need to have two. You have to also refrain from the 39 categories of work. Now, I want to say that whenever we talk about these 39 characters of work. And by the way, if you study the laws of Shabbos, they're very comprehensive. There's many, many things that you can't do to experience Shabbos. And someone who has never experienced it, it's very difficult and potentially overwhelming, at least initially. I am lucky, I'm fortunate that I grew up in a family that was always Shabbos observant. And therefore, to me, it's second nature. Shabbos, of course, you get into Shabbos mode. You don't flip on lights. You don't flip off lights all these things that you do and don't do, and they become very natural. And I think that people who are foreigners to it or who have never had that experience, I think they are likely to be overwhelmed. I want to suggest an idea to make it a little bit less overwhelming. There's 39 categories of work that are prohibited on Shabbos. 
Now, 39 in Hebrew is a lamid and a tes. As we know, every Hebrew letter is associated with a number. A lamid tes. And the commentaries explain that lamid tes or a tes lamid, that spells tal. Tal is the Hebrew word for dew. There's rain, which is a geshem or matar in Hebrew. And then there's tal, which means dew. And the commentaries talk about what is the overlap between do and the third forbidden categories of work that we refrain, that we don't do on Shabbos. And the commentaries offer their various explanations. I want to suggest an explanation about how to view these 39 categories of work. At the end of Deuteronomy, at the end of Dvarim, Moshe is about to pass and he conveys his last message to the Jewish people. And he begins one of his speeches with a sentence, Ya'arov kamatar let my message to you, let it come down as the rain. Tizal katal imrasi, let my words, let them flow like the dew. And Rashi says, what's so special about dew? Why should his words flow like dew? So he answers, he explains, because rain, some people like rain. If you're a farmer and you need to have rain for your crops, of course you love rain. But some people don't love rain. If you're a traveler and you're traveling on the highway and there is mud everywhere and your wagon gets bogged down by the rain, you're not happy with the rain. And therefore, rain is something that made some people happy and made some people a little bit disappointed. But everyone loves do. Everyone loves do. And therefore, what Moshe is telling him is that my message is going to be so pleasant, everyone's going to love it. I think when our sages tell us there's 39 categories of work and it's connected to the idea of do, I think that what it's revealing to us is that we may think, we may assume that when someone is Shabbos observant, they put themselves in prison. They incarcerate themselves for 24, 25 hours a week. And you know what? If you have this religious guilt, or if you have this religious compulsion, or you've been indoctrinated, well, you do it. You do it begrudgingly. Maybe the message of the Tal Malachos, of the 39 Malachos of Shabbos, it's like the do. When someone actually experiences it, when someone actually lives it, they discover that it's all pleasantness. I say, just tell us, Shabbos is one of those things that unless you do it, you can't understand it. There's no way to experience it unless you actually experience it. Talmud actually compares it to a special spice that unless you have access to that spice, you can't taste it. I can't send you a message, a text message, and say, okay, the spice tastes like this, tastes like that. You have to actually taste it. You have to experience the flavor for yourself, and only then do you know what it's all about. I think with Shabbos, we're told it's pleasant, and by the way, the people that observe it, they agree it's pleasant. And I think this is a really good Shabbos to think about, the fact that there are things happening around us that should raise eyebrows and when you open up the Talmud and you find out that this idea of Shabbos, it's holiness that is so great. It's even holier than the temple, the tabernacle. 
It's commune with God. We kick the angels out. And then we discovered there's two levels. There's the original first Shabbos, and that is the Shabbos that really included only one law. Don't leave your house. There wasn't yet the instructions about what's prohibited on Shabbos. And the Talmud tells us that had the Jewish people observed that, that is a level of Shabbos observance that could have freed them from any subjugation to Amalek. An amazing insight. I think we're about to experience a Shabbos like that. Again, caveats, without any predictions. I don't know what's going to happen, but I think it's noteworthy. But to actually get redemption, we have to fully observe Shabbos. We have to experience the pleasantness of the do of what it's like to withhold from these 39 categories of work on Shabbos. I want to add another idea from the Parsha that I think could also be relevant and also be topical to what we are experiencing together as all humans. And this idea I got from Rabbi Yaakov Nagel, a rabbi here in Houston. So in our parishes, we talk about the building of the tabernacle and of the various vestments and garments of the high priest. So the high priest, of course, has his eight garments. And one of them, the choshen, is the breastplate that has 12 stones, four rows of three going across. And interestingly, we're told the names of the precious stones that he wore in the choshen. And it tells us that the fourth row, so this is the bottom row, Tarshish, Shoham, and Yashve. This is chapter 39, verse 13. These are the names of the three final stones on his breastplate. And the final stone is the Yashve, and that is the stone that is associated with the tribe of Benjamin. Now, I think in general, it's somewhat unusual that the Torah finds the need to give us the name of the precious stone. Obviously, it's not arbitrary. You can't just choose any precious stone that you want. It has to be these 12 specific stones. Obviously, there is some message behind that. But interestingly, the word Yashve can be read as yesh peh. That's how it's spelled in Hebrew. And if you know a little bit of Hebrew, you know the word yesh means there is, and peh means a mouth. There is a mouth. So Rabbi Nagel suggested, who were the most famous descendants of the tribe of Benjamin? So the most famous descendants are Mordechai and Esther, from the Purim story, and of course King Saul, who was the first king of the Jewish people. And he noted that King Saul, Scripture tells us, he was heralded in his ability to refrain from speaking. He had a mouth. When he was coronated as king, he didn't go blabbering about it to anyone that would listen. He didn't bloviate about it in public. He was silent. He didn't even announce it at all. And Esther, of course, she's heralded, by not revealing that she was a Jewess, and that, of course, enabled, facilitated the Purim miracle. Maybe it's not a coincidence that the name of the stone that's associated with the tribe of Benjamin, Yashve, Yeshpeh, have a mouth. There is a mouth, and then we see that some of the most famous descendants of the tribe of Benjamin had this exemplary character of knowing 
when to use their mouth and when not to use it. I remember as a child being told that every person is allotted a certain amount of words that they can say in a lifetime. And once they use up all their words, they die. That's what I heard as a child. I don't know if it's true. I've never seen any source for it. But I think it's an interesting idea that there is a sensitivity to know that we have a very powerful organ. We have our mouth, and we have the ability to communicate, to create words and messages, but that could be potentially dangerous. And therefore, if the lesson of the tribe of Benjamin, Yashfei, there is a mouth, you have to know how to use this organ. And then we read about the me'il. The me'il is the robe, it's one of the garments of the high priest, and it was made completely out of tcheles. Tcheles is the blue wool that is used to make the strand of the tzitzis, that is the blue wool dyed with the special dye, tcheles. Now the Talmud tells us, in the Buddha of Zvachim, page 88b, that each one of the eight garments of the high priest would atone for a different kind of sin. And the me'il, the robe, that would atone for evil talk, for Lashon Hara. Why? Because the bottom of the me'il contained the little bells and pomegranates, and that makes noises. And therefore, something that makes noise, that's going to come atone for something that makes noise. And Robert Nagel added that if you look at a bell, a bell kind of looks like an open mouth, whereas a pomegranate looks like a closed mouth. And that's the message of the me'il. You have to sometimes know when it's time to open your mouth. And sometimes you have to know when it's time to close your mouth. And then he added that the verse says that the head opening, i.e. the middle part of the garment where you put your head through, the verse says about it that the mouth of the me'il, the mouth of the robe should be shaped in a way or should be created in a way that the mouth is not going to rip. And again, we see this message, that there's the mouth, and we don't let it tear, we don't let it rip, we don't let it go rogue and be used for bad things. I think it's interesting, at a time where everyone's trying to grapple with the situation that's happening in the world around us, and we see in our Parsha, we see hints about the importance of making sure that we don't use our mouth for any bad purposes. And of course, at a time like this, we all look for leadership. We all look for guidance. And I saw a letter written by Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky, who's widely considered to be the greatest Torah scholar alive today. He wrote in a letter that there are three things that we should work on, that we should try to strengthen to try to spare ourselves from the ravages of the coronavirus. And the first thing that he mentions is to refrain from speaking Lashon Hara, from speaking any evil talk and any gossip. And then he quotes the Talmud. The Talmud, the book of Arachin, the Talmud says that when someone in antiquity would use to would speak Lashon Hara, they would get the leprosy, they would get saras. And what would happen to someone who has saras, who has this magical skin malady that's described, of course, in the book of Leviticus, Vayikra, we'll read it in a few weeks. What happens to such a person? Such a person has to be quarantined, has to be isolated. And the Talmud explains what's the logic. If you speak evil talk, 
If you're always going to highlight people's flaws behind their back, you're going to create division. You're going to take people that were united, that were together, and you're going to separate them. And you're going to cause each one to be on their own. Well, it's only fitting for you to be separated from other people as well and to be sequestered and to be quarantined. And therefore, at times like this, where people are being separated from each other and being quarantined and sequestered and being home, working from home, having your children home, they're not with other kids. It's a very important lesson to think about that Lashon Hara is something that the Talmud tells us that's a cause for quarantine. And therefore, we should try to find the good in other people. I want to add maybe a suggestion. The me'il, this garment that is used to atone for evil talk, it's made completely out of tcheles. Of course, that's a very unique color. And the Talmud says that the reason why we have tcheles on our tzitzis, that's because when you see this color, it's such a unique color, it's going to make you think about things. And you're going to think about the sea and the ocean, and that's blue. And that's going to make you think about the sky. The sky's blue. And that's going to make you think about heavenly things. And you'll start thinking about the heavenly throne. And therefore, says the Talmud, it's a very appropriate color to have on your tzitzis. So when you look at your tzitzis and you see the blue string, it's to remind you of God. Maybe we can add the me'il, this robe, this garment to the high priest that is used to atone for evil talk. Maybe it's revealing to us the secret to make sure that we ourselves are not going to fall into the trap of letting our mouth go rogue, of not taking the lesson of the tribe of Benjamin to keep quiet and to say negative things about other people. How do we prevent that from happening? Tchelas, this color. Why is that? Our sages tell us that where do souls come from? Our souls come from a place that's very lofty. They are hewn from the heavenly throne of God. Now, of course, we don't know exactly what that means, but it's interesting that when you look at the treles with respect to tzitzis, we're told you'll think about the sea, and you'll think about the sky, you'll think about the heavenly realm, you'll think about the throne of God. Maybe the lesson, or one of the lessons of the me'il, of this robe, is that it's completely tcheles. And therefore, when you see the me'il, you're supposed to think about the heavenly throne. And this is the way to fix the problem of Shonara. When you see someone, you see negative things about them. And that is the impetus to speak negatively about them. Think about tcheles. Think about the heavenly throne... And that is where that person's soul, that person's essence, comes from. Who determined that this person should exist? God did. Where does this person's soul come from? From the most lofty spiritual place that we can even fathom, the heavenly throne of God. Someone like that I'm going to speak negatively about? Certainly not. And if you think about this idea that the me'il, the robe, and the color you're very likely to have a yashve, to have a mouth, the yesh pet, to have a mouth, to know when to use it, how to use it, and use it in a way that's not going to cause division amongst people, and hopefully will be something that will contribute to a reunification of us and our friends and us and our communities, and really us together with the Jewish people in a redemption 
of bringing the Jews from all across the world together, united in Israel, in full redemption. My hope is that wherever you are, you're safe, your family's safe, you're doing well. You could always email me. My email address is rabbiwalbajim.com. If I don't respond immediately, please forgive me. But as of this week, I have not allowed a single email to not be responded to. So I will respond to your email. Please, God, it might take a while, but I will get back to you. So email me, let me know how you're doing, rabbiwalbajima.com, and hopefully we will see great things happening to the Jewish people in the weeks and months that are upcoming. Have a great Shabbos, and look forward to speaking to you, please God, next week.